Hello and welcome to another episode of All Aboard Golf. This is our first tournament preview episode. We'll be talking about the Players' Championship. My name is Caleb Roberson. I'm here with my co-host, Drew Warner. Hello, Drew. What's up, Caleb? We're really excited to have you have you on board uh, to talk about TPC Sawgrass and the history of the Players' Championship. Yeah, so like Caleb said, this is our first course preview and tournament stream episode. Uh, we are very, very excited to give you some context on, first of all, the event itself, in this case, the Players' Championship. Secondly, the history of the tournament and of the course. And then thirdly, uh, take you hole by hole through the golf course. So welcome aboard. So in this episode, Drew and I are going to be talking about the history of the tournament, the Players' Championship, and the history of the course that is played on TPC Sawgrass. Next week, we will be going into a hole-by-hole deep dive on the course itself, how it plays, some of the strategy that the players will use. If you remember back to our Welcome Aboard episode, that was originally going to be just one big, long episode. But we've decided to split these into two, a history portion of the of the episode released two weeks before the tournament. And then next week, we'll release our deep dive on the course itself. And hopefully this will, will give a little bit of a, a separation of two different types of content, but also you know some shorter episodes as well. And also, you'll, you'll get uh, more content from us as a result. Yeah, I think like you were saying, Caleb, one of the hopes we had for splitting these into two episodes was just there's so much on both sides, both on the history and course origin side and the actual hole by hole from the golf course. So much good content on both arms of that that we just didn't want to cut out and eliminate. So like Caleb said, it's a chance to package some stuff into two slightly shorter, more digestible episodes, as well as make sure we give both the golf course and the tournament's history and the golf course history uh, they're due individually. So we are so excited about that. And uh, it will also mean that we're releasing episodes two weeks in a row, which is the first time we've done it. So uh, be excited about some more content from Olive Word Golf over the next few weeks. Yeah. And so uh, speaking of all that content, let's jump right into it, Drew, uh, and talk about just some of the basics of the Players' Championship. And for, for our listeners that are new to following professional golf, the Players' Championship is the PGA Tour's grand tournament. It's their you know mini major. A lot of people call it the fifth major um, on the on the PGA Tour schedule. It's the best field in in professional golf that will ever you know, be on the same course together. And Drew, let's talk about the format a little bit too. Yes, yeah, so the tournament format you know not too dissimilar from most of the events you'll see week to week out on the PGA Tour or on most tours around the world for that matter. So the tournament format is four rounds of eighteen hole stroke play. So four days long goes from a Thursday to a Sunday. Uh, and 144 players you know, start the week. And so they'll play the first two rounds. All 144 players will shoot their scores. And then ultimately, after 36 holes, halfway through the tournament, there will be a cut where only the top 70 players and ties after the first two rounds will continue to play the second two rounds. Uh, ultimately, after four rounds of play concluded, the last remaining player with the lowest score of those top 70 and ties that are remaining for the weekend is your 2023 Players' Champion. Uh, one of the cool wrinkles with this tournament, though, I will say, is the playoff format. So if there is a tie score after 72 holes of regulation, the tournament will go to a playoff to determine who the actual champion is going to be. And unlike a lot of tournaments which play sudden death playoffs, kind of the first player to get a lower score and a hole wins, uh, the players does what is known as an aggregate playoff. So they'll play holes 16, 17, and 18. And 
basically whoever has the lowest score combined among those three holes aggregated is the champion. If there's still a tie after those three aggregate holes, then they will go play the 17th hole, which we'll get to a bit later. And that is kind of the most famous hole, the Island Green at TPC Sawgrass. They'll play that hole over and over again, sudden death. Uh, until someone emerges as the champion. So there have not been a lot of playoffs in the history of the players, uh, but I, the ones that there have been have been pretty excellent because 16, 17, and 18 are, are excellent holes to watch a playoff on, and they create a lot of drama, which, as we'll get to later, was one of the original intentions uh, of Pete Dye, the course architect, and kind of one of the stipulations he was given by the person who gave him the job. So uh, they mission accomplished as far as that goes. Yeah, and... and- we mentioned earlier that this is not a major, so it's not one of the four major uh, championships that we mentioned in our uh, previous episode, the the golf history episode. But this playoff format is one of the features, along with some of the other things that we'll talk about in this episode, that make it more than just any other tournament on the PGA Tour schedule. You know, this three-hole aggregate playoff is uh, you know a, a feature that elevates it above every other week's status and, and closer to a major championship. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, one of our goals with this podcast generally, as we talked about in our first episode, was just to highlight the biggest events. And we're going to go through a lot of the reasons why the Players' Championship is considered one of the biggest events in the calendar, why it means a lot for a player's legacy if they win the Players' Championship, and why it holds in a lot of ways almost as much weight as as a major championship. Right. So I think we'll start off too, just by talking a bit about uh, the course. Yeah. Up front, the Players' Championship is held at TPC Sawgrass in Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida, which is also home to the headquarters of the PGA Tour. Uh, they call it the global home of golf, um, and that's kind of what their uh, what their tagline is for the place. So it's an important location for the PGA Tour corporately, as well as for what, you know basically their the biggest championship that they host throughout the year. Because you know I think Caleb alluded to it earlier. The four major championships are not operated by the PGA Tour; they are operated by separate individual ruling bodies. Um, so again, this is the PGA Tour's chance to kind of get all the best names on the biggest stage um, and and for them to actually have control of setting up the tournament itself. Uh, as far as timing goes, the Players' Championship typically happens in March every year as part of the PGA Tour's Florida Swing. Uh, so when I say Florida Swing, uh, for some of our newer listeners, it might be important to hear a bit about this. The PGA Tour schedule is kind of broken up into sections or swings throughout the year. Um, and typically in the early part of the season, you see more defined swings. So the season begins out on the West Coast. Uh, typically in California and Nevada, they'll play five, six events out there to start the year in January and February. And they just wrapped that up, actually, and are now kind of moving next week to Florida, Florida, the Florida Swing. Um, and so they will begin the Florida Swing. <clears throat> they'll play six, seven events there. I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but they'll be there for about a month and a half. And the players fits kind of neatly right into that Florida swing. And so it's definitely a time of year when players are starting to build towards the Masters tournament, which is the first major championship of the year in April. Um, so the players is, is, a, is a great opportunity to, for players to test their game on the biggest stage against the best competition leading into that major season. So um, it's part of, part, of the, part of the Florida swing. But it, it, Caleb, I, mean, I don't know if you want to talk a bit about this too, that the players was not always part of the Florida swing. It wasn't at first, and then it was for a while, and then it wasn't again, and now it's sort of found its way back. I don't know if you want to talk a bit about the... Uh, obviously, we associate very strongly the Players' Championship today with TBC Sawgrass. That's where it's been held for the last you know 30 years. And with Mark. Uh, but it was not an event... Yeah, it, it was not an event that was, tip, it was it was originally designated to be held at the same course every year. So I don't know if you want to talk a bit about some of the history of the different courses that have been played during this championship, Caleb. Yeah, and... and- when it started in, in 1974, it was held in Atlanta. That was a September tournament. 
The next year it was held at Colonial Country Club. That is a uh, golf course that is still featured on the, on the PJ Tour every year. That year is in October. Then they had a quick turnaround to February of 1976 when they played at Inverie Country Club. And then in 1977, they moved to the Jacksonville area and have been there ever since. But it was not actually held at TPC Sawgrass for the first few years. They held the tournament at Sawgrass Country Club. And this was the first year that it was actually in March where we see it on the schedule today. Uh, 1977 to 1981, they held it at Sawgrass Country Club. And the PGA Tour was interested in keeping it in the Jacksonville area, but they were actually unable to convince the owners of the country club to host the tournament every year. So, you know, we'll talk about the the building of TPC Sawgrass uh, a little later in this episode, but it's kind of a, a cool story there, Drew. I don't know if you want to elaborate on that at all. Yeah, I, I think we should kind of get into that a bit when we talk more about the history of TPC Sawgrass, but uh, long story short, and we'll get more into this. TBC Sawgrass is located directly across the street from where Sawgrass Country Club was. So essentially, the, this big tournament happens every single year, and everyone at Sawgrass Country Club sees the crowds flooding into TBC Sawgrass. And I'm sure, you know, to a certain extent, Caleb, it's like you know, moving to a new city and moving in right next door to your ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend. Yeah, what could have been? Yeah, what, what, what could have been for Sawgrass Country Club? Uh, now seeing what the Players' Championship has become today, so... Uh, it is right across the street, but but we'll get a bit more into the history of Sawgrass when we when we jump to the course section of of this episode. But but yeah, as as Caleb mentioned, the tournament moved around a good bit early in its years, um, and as a result, we saw some interesting consolidation of winners early on in the time of the Players Championship. So Jack Nicklaus, who I personally believe to be the greatest golfer of all time, if not you know pretty much everyone can agree one of the two greatest golfers of all time, uh, he ultimately won three of the first five players' championships. And as Caleb mentioned, those were all held at different golf courses. So we saw some consolidation. We saw Jack Nicholas play well and capture a number of them. Uh, but, you know, there's been a lot more parity in the tournament itself since the players moved to TBC Sawgrass in 1982, like Caleb mentioned. Because since then, no player has won the event more than twice, which is pretty striking given that Nicholas won it three times in five years to kick things off. So Tiger Woods uh, is, of course, one of the players that has won it twice. Uh, Fred Couples has also won it twice. Steve Elkington, Davis Love III, and Hal Sutton. So, you know, a lot of big names there. Uh, a lot of really players with solid careers that maybe time has forgotten about a little bit that have won the event twice at Sawgrass. But the point is there's not, uh, there's not been a dominating sort of, you know, horse for a course, if you will, a player that plays very, very well at one particular course or a type of player that plays well at Sawgrass. Uh, we've seen all kinds of different champions there, all kinds of you know different final winning scores. Uh, really, I mean, the name of the game has been a lack of consistency as far as people, uh, you know, always performing well there, always not performing well there. There's always some names that are surprising to miss the cut, and sometimes the winners can be really surprising, as we've seen in past years. But uh, not a lot of dominance by any one player or one group of players at, at Sawgrass. Yeah, by, by my count, we haven't had a second-time winner since Tiger won it for the second time in 2013. You know, I mean, part of that could be, Drew, I don't know if we want to talk about the field now. We kind of teased a little bit earlier that it's the strongest field in golf, which is a little surprising to me, given that you know, we, we said that it's not even one of the four most prestigious tournaments to win in professional golf, yet it's the strongest field that we'll ever assemble on a golf course. Yeah, just, just to sort of give some background on that and explain why the players is the strongest field. Uh, I mean, first and foremost, you've got some really strong exemption criteria. So basically, 
inclusion criteria, meaning how people ultimately qualify to be a part of the player's field, which we'll go through. But just at face value, the reason the players is a stronger field statistically than the four major championships. So the Masters, the PGA Championship, the U.S. Open Championship, and the Open Championship. Uh, with the Masters, the reason the players are stronger is really down to field size. So the Masters is an invitational. It chooses which players to invite, although they do have their own qualification criteria. And the Masters field generally hovers between 80 and 90 players, which is smaller. Like I mentioned before, the players is 144 uh, player field, and the other major championships are closer to that 150, 156 range. So again, if there's less people you have to beat, it's statistically easier to win. So that makes the Masters a slightly weaker field, technically speaking, than the Players Championship. And then the PGA Championship provides opportunities for PGA professionals, not golf professionals, but golf professionals that you know work at golf courses and give lessons and work in the pro shop, and and that they give, they give those golf professionals a chance to play in an event called the PGA Professional Championship. And the top 20 finishers in that event qualify for the PGA Championship. So these are club pros whose full-time job is not playing golf, it's teaching golf. And as a result, they're not really threats to win the event ever. One of them, at least in recent history, has never won the event. Um, so essentially you've got 20 players right there that are you know, not gonna contend for the title. Again, the field effectively is smaller at the PGA Championship. And then at the U.S. Open and the Open Championship, that's the reason why it's a little bit weaker field is in the name. So Open, uh, the definition of an Open Championship is the opportunity, is a term that gives the opportunity for players to go through a multi-round qualification system, basically play a series of tournaments. And if they play well enough in those tournaments, they'll ultimately qualify to join the field. So theoretically, I could try and qualify for the U.S. Open this year. I played a couple good rounds. I could be in the U.S. Open. If I made it to the U.S. Open, there's zero chance that I win the U.S. Open. So, you know, there's a lot of players that are amateur players or college players or, um, you know, lower level professionals that just happen to play a couple of good rounds and get through and, and get into the U.S. Open. So, and the, and the same thing is true for the Open Championship or the British Open. They have a similar qualification system over there. You can't pull a Francis we met? Yeah, I mean, it might, might be tough. I don't know. The, uh, the, the depth at the top of Russian Valls may be a little bit, uh, maybe a little bit stronger these days than it was back in 1913 at, at that U.S. Open. Shame. But uh, regardless, those fields tend to be a little bit weaker than the players. So the players are the only full field event where you're getting that 144 players with all the best players in the world there, and they're all congregating at this place with no additional qualifiers that don't have a realistic chance to win the tournament. So with that in mind, the players is the strongest field in golf. And uh, Carol, I think I think the purse probably reflects that. I don't know if you want to talk about the, the type of money that's up for grabs at the Players' Championship because it's the biggest purse in golf and uh, the numbers are, are, are pretty staggering. Yeah, well, the Masters hasn't announced their purse for this year, so um, you know, they might be competing, but... Uh, this year, it's a whopping $25 million. In the past, it has been $20 million. Um, but this year, it is a part of the PGA Tour's designated event series, which we can talk about um, a little bit later. But th this is primarily a, a response to Live Golf and the top PGA Tour players all agreeing that they will all show up to the same events basically just to make a more compelling entertainment product. And because of that, they have increased the purses for all of those tournaments this year to $20 million. So they have increased the players even more than that 
um, to 25 million. The winner of this tournament doesn't just get that. What, you, what did you say, Drew? It was $4.5 million winner prize. That's right. 4.5 million. Which is a astounding number of dollars. But the winner will also re uh, receive 80 points towards his OWGR uh, world ranking, as well as 600 FedEx Cup points. And for our, our beginner listeners, the FedEx Cup is a season-long competition. Basically, every PGA tournament that is contested throughout the year, there is a certain number of, of points that are allotted for uh, how basically how you finish. So the winner of this tournament will receive 600 points. The second place will, will receive less than that, you know, all the way down to, um, I think you have to make the cut to get any points. But uh, regardless, at the end of the season, the winner is whoever has the most points. Um, and we'll talk about that in, in, in later episodes as, as the season goes on. But that is also something that sets this tournament above other tournaments is you get the most FedEx Cup points for winning it. It's on par with a major in that regard. And Caleb, I think a lot of this connects back just to the strength of the field. Like players are compensated from a financial perspective. Players are compensated with a larger amount of FedEx Cup points and the world ranking points because they're beating such a strong field. So examples of some of the biggest exemption criteria that get people into this event are you have to have been a winner of a PGA Tour event since the previous year's Players' Championship. So all the winners are getting in there. Uh, you have to be kind of in the top echelon of the previous season's FedEx Cup points list. So again, Caleb just mentioned the season-long race. All the players that qualify for the FedEx Cup playoffs will get into the players as well. So the top performers from the previous season. Uh, the major champions from the last five years will get exemptions into the players, so they'll always be invited. So again, all the people that have won golf's four biggest events over the last five years will be reflected in the field. Obviously, the players' championship winners from previous years, from the last five years, will get into the event too. And then kind of to top it all off, you want to get players that are in the best form at the time of the event. And so there's a cutoff a few weeks before the event um, and the top 50 in the official world golf ranking at that time, a few weeks before the players will ultimately be added to the field to kind of round out any uh, remaining spots. So regardless of any metric, any way you look at it, it is up and down an incredibly deep and strong field. And that's why it makes so much money to win the tournament. Uh, that's why it's such an important tournament. And, uh, and, you know, that's why they're compensated with such such great benefits from a world ranking and, and FedEx Cup perspective. But, Gil, I'd like to make one note just in my research, I came across something very interesting about the purse for this event. Uh, like we just mentioned, it, you know, it's $4.5 to the winner. That is an unbelievably huge winner's check. Um, that's the biggest individual winner's check the PGA Tour has ever given out. Um, even last year, it was $3.6 which was a lot. Uh, now we're going to have, you know, an additional almost extra million, which is which is crazy. But I was looking back at a chart that basically had the winner, um, the year and the winner's first prize check for all the players championships in history. And Jack Nicklaus, obviously I mentioned before, won the first players championship in 1974. How much do you think his winner's check was, Caleb, if you had to, if you had to just toss a ballpark number out there? I would say $500,000. Yeah, I would think that would be a really, really good guess. But back in 1974, Jack Nicklaus got $50,000 for winning the first player's championship, which is almost unfathomable compared to what we see today. And I think you, I think we did the math on this, Caleb. I know, I know there's inflation and, you know, that dollar amount would be a lot more today, but it was what? It was 300,000 300, something yep. in, in dollars in 2022. Yeah. 
And uh, it was, you know, so even then 300,000 versus 4.5 million is, is a pretty unbelievable increase. And I think it sort of speaks to what you were talking about during our last episode about all the money that Tiger Woods brought into the game. You know, we see only 40 years ago, uh, the purse increasing by that much to today is, is, is pretty unbelievable. So, yeah, I mean, that that's, you know, just about all the evidence that you need for arguing that Tiger has made all of the PGA Tour golfers in 2023 a lot more money uh, than they would have otherwise. Uh, one final note I will make before we jump to some of the courses history, which I think is the most interesting part of this episode. Um, one thing you probably won't hear a lot in the broadcast this week is who holds the record for the lowest score in a player's championship in history. And that is because the record was set in 1994 at minus 24 by Greg Norman. Um, it's a little bit ironic for those who have not been following. Greg Norman is the commissioner and one of the founders of the Live Golf Tour, which is kind of the PGA Tour's biggest threat in competition and has you know lured away a lot of the top players from the tour over the course of the past year. So I have a feeling, given the fact that the PGA Tour controls the players, we won't hear a lot about Greg Norman having the all-time scoring record. But typically, the scores are relatively high at TBC Sawgrass compared to other courses. Um, you know, on the on tour, you know, it's not it's not necessarily a birdie fest where players are going super low. So to have twenty minus twenty four at Sawgrass is it must have been pretty soft that year because that is uh, that's an unbelievably low score compared to what we we typically see. And also just a reminder of of how good Greg Norman was as a player and how overshadowed that gets now with all that's gone on in the last year. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, really one of the greatest players of all time. And, um, you know, he hasn't really been in the news for his play or for his legacy much recently. Um, obviously for other things he's been sort of talked a lot about, but uh, definitely a reminder that he was easily one of the two best players in the world and, and arguably the best player in the world in the 1990s. So uh, unbelievable career from him that is probably not talked about as much as it should be uh, given recent events. So, all right, well, we're going to move over now and talk a bit more about the history of TPC Sawgrass because, uh, Caleb, I don't know about you, but doing research for this was really, really insightful for me because, you know, growing up my entire life, I just had been so used to the players being at Sawgrass that I really never thought twice about the course. I said, oh, you know, that looks nice. Um, but I didn't really know too much about the history of the course, why it was built, how it was built. And sort of, you know, who is behind, who are the driving forces behind making it what it is today? And I think I'm going to watch this Players Championship this year with a much greater appreciation, having done some of the research that we're about to share with you guys, uh, just because I have a, a, a much greater sense of what that land once was uh, compared to what it actually has become today. So, so Caleb, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about maybe Dean Beeman and sort of his desire to you know, kick off the Players' Championship at a place like TPC Sawgrass. Yeah, so we were talking earlier about how the the, the tournament was moved to Sawgrass Country Club, um, and we, we teased a little bit that they couldn't come to an agreement to hold the, the tournament there indefinitely. So uh, Dean Beeman decided, well, if we can't hold the tournament here, I'm just going to buy this plot of land across the street and build a golf course for myself that we can use to hold the Players' Championship Mr. Beeman hired very famous golf course architect Pete Dye to build this golf course. And some of the examples of Pete Dye's other works are Harbor Town Golf Links. That's a uh, course that the PGA Tour visits every single year. It's the tournament right after the Masters. The Ocean Course at Kiowa Island. 
They hosted the 2021 PGA Championship, which I actually had the chance to go to on Sunday, watch Phil Mickelson win, which was just an unbelievable experience and can attest that that is a absolutely fantastic golf course. And then the Straits course at Whistling Straits, and they hosted the uh, 2020, which ended up being the 2021 Ryder Cup. Um, so obviously a great legacy from from Pete Dye. He's built over 100 other courses that you know some some of them are are lesser known and played by you know amateur golfers every day and all the way up to the most famous golf courses uh, in in the world really and Beeman approached Pete Dye with three main stipulations or guidelines for how the how he wanted the course to be constructed and <clears throat> the first one was he he wanted it designed for an in-person spectator he wanted cr- big crowds to be able to come and sit up on hills and have great views of the greens, of the players, and be able to, to watch golf in person. The second stipulation was to have different shelves or levels on each green to vary the hole locations between each of the four rounds of the tournament. And you know this helps to kind of vary... Uh, how the golf course is played. We'll get into some of this next week, but it's quite amazing how changing just the pin location on a green can change completely how the course or how the hole uh, specifically is, is played, even going all the way back to the tee. And then finally, he wanted a final stretch that when played well by the the tournament leader would lead to a victory. And if played poorly, would lead to defeat. And we'll talk about this again later. I've got uh, an analysis. I'm taking the final, uh, the back nine next week, and we'll we'll do a, a deep dive into 16, 17, and 18, especially. Um, but I would say that Pete, I definitely accomplished that uh, and, and built a great golf course. Yeah, so Vernon Kelly was actually the project manager um, on the construction site that became TBC Sawgrass. So he was, you know, out there working day to day with Pete Dye and with the rest of the construction crew to physically build the course. So, you know, what, what a better source! Uh, I can't imagine a better source really for information than, uh, than than Vernon Kelly. But there was a great interview published with him, and there's a lot of great stuff in the article. But I'll just touch on a few sort of high level points that I thought were most interesting as far as the course's background. So. Obviously, Caleb and I mentioned before that it's the land directly across the street from Sawgrass Country Club, the previous host site of the players for the for four years before TPC Sawgrass opened up. And that land was pretty much completely underwater marsh. So there's grasses that kind of go up to your shin, up to your waist, and it was just completely underwater, basically. So not land that you'd expect to be a golf course at all. Um, and especially back then, I'm sure it was not land that anyone anticipated there being a golf course on. And as a result of it being this underwater marshland, Vernon Kelly talks a lot about the construction crew having to deal with, quote, murderous wildlife, end quote. Um, so there's some really crazy stories in there about, you know, the, the, the grass was so tough and tall that, that the construction crew had to carry machetes around with them and just hack the grass out of the way to even have places to walk. Uh, but the big risk with that was that rattlesnakes like to hide underneath these grass because they were t- totally covered by the fronds of some of the taller marsh grasses. And so you cut open grass, not knowing whether there was like a poisonous or venomous rattlesnake right underneath, um, which honestly, I feel like I would have probably quit my job on Pete Dye's crew very, very quickly if I <laughs> had to deal with that kind of uh, occupational hazard in the workplace. Um, but, you know, 
Kerry claims that only one person was ever bit by a snake during their time uh, building the course, and he ultimately recovered fully. Uh, so I think that's something he was pretty proud of because it sounded like something they were they were pretty scared of. So there's some great stories in that article about them trying to lure snakes into different locations and try and make sure the snakes were staying away from the actual build of the course. But there were some serious challenges as far as wildlife goes. Um, but I also mentioned the underwater part. So you might be wondering, how is it possible for a golf course to be built on a site that was literally multiple feet underwater? Uh, Pete Dye was described by Kelly as a quote-unquote barnyard engineer. Um, and be, what that means basically is that Pete Dye was not an engineer by trade, but he had a great sense of how water uh, could drain and how drainage worked. And obviously drainage is very important to golf courses in general. And so one of the reasons Pete Dye was hired by Dean Beeman to build sawgrass on this swamp site is because he's probably one of the few golf course architects that would be able to figure out how to realistically drain the course to make it playable and create turf conditions that would make a golf course even possible to exist there. Um, one more note on the land itself before they started building the course. So the land that was bought um, was was 417 acres. So obviously a huge chunk of land, the course is laid out over you know all, all about 400 of those acres. And Caleb, I have to ask, obviously this was back in, you know, 19, I mean, this, the land was probably sold a little bit before the course opened. So we'll say 1980 for argument's sake. How much do you think 417 acres of land in Florida went for in 1980? Um, well, I don't, I don't have a guess, but I, I will say a, a quick Google told me that one acre of land in Florida cost an average of uh, about $29,000 today. Okay. So that's, that's today. So we're thinking back again, we're in 1980. Um, the number is still mind-blowing because the 417 acres of land that was purchased by Dean Beeman and the PGA Tour was bought for $1. Absolute steal. And that, that has to be like the real estate deal of the century. I mean, the, the increase in property value from underwater swamp worth $1 for 417 acres. Um, that is ultimately now one of the world's most recognizable golf courses and the global home of golf, according to the PGA Tour. Um, is, and, and all the housing that has to go along with that. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Um, I'm sure that I, I would love to see kind of the ROI percentage on that uh, on that original investment. It's it's undefined ROI. Yeah, I was going to say I think it might be that big that, that it's undefined. But uh, anyway, in, in terms of the construction, once the once the the big purchase, quote unquote, <laughs> obviously very small purchase um, to get a lot of land was made. Uh, Pete Dye was really, really involved in the day-to-day construction, and that differentiated himself from a lot of architects of the time. Uh, And Pete Dye would often talk about that with his crew. He'd say, look, you know, most golf course architects are going to come out here on the first day. They're going to give you guys your instructions on how to build the course, and you're not going to see them again until the course opens up months later. But Pete Dye said, I'm not going to be like that. Look, I'm going to be here every week. I'm going to go through stuff with you. I'm going to help you guys move some dirt around. I'm going to help you guys move some sand around. I'm going to be a part of this process. Um, so he was very, very hands-on and made sure that his crew knew he was hands-on and he was different from other golf course architects. Kelly tells some great stories, too, about Pete Dye, um, that he was simultaneously very, very generous with his workers, but also very tough on them. So in terms of his generosity, he was very, you know, he would house construction workers in him and his wife's house during the construction. He'd feed them meals especially if there were younger kids around the site, he'd always make sure to explain to them what he was working on, what he was doing, um, and, and as, as well as bring them into his home as well. So he was uh, very generous with his time, uh, you know, very good influence for the game in general, but he was also very tough on his workers. Uh, Kelly tells a great story in the article where he, he basically, Pete Dye basically, you know, 
the workers were complaining about what sounded like a very, very difficult task. And Pete Dye just said, ah, oh, you boys, you're just weaklings. So uh, he definitely had high expectations and, and definitely had a very clear vision for what he wanted. And I would say it's one of the reasons Dean Beeman hired him to, to be the course architect in the first place. So uh, I, I recommend checking out that full, that full interview with Vernon Kelly to get some more nuggets. But those are some of the things we felt were, were most important to share with you all um, and just talk a bit about that course background. So Caleb, I know the most famous hole at TBC Sawgrass. I know we're going to talk about it a lot more next week when we go hole by hole through the course. Um, but the 17th hole, the Island Green, probably one of the top five most recognizable golf holes uh, on the planet. I know you mentioned that you recognized it before you even started playing golf as the 17th hole at TBC Sawgrass. Uh, there's a great story for why that is an Island Green. I think most people just say, oh, it's kind of cool and unique, but don't know the story. So wh- why don't you tell us how, uh, how that green became an Island? Yeah, so... Like Drew said, we'll do a deep dive on this next week. But speaking of deep dives, there was a, a, a pile of sand in between the tee and the, the green of, of hole number 17 that was just the best sand on the property. So this it started as just moving the sand to various places to fill in holes or bunkers or whatever they needed the sand for. You know, Drew mentioned this is a very... Uh, very well drained golf course, which sand is is very helpful in, in accomplishing that. Um, but then it turns out, you know, when they were finally done, they had dug up basically the whole 17th hole and it was very, very ugly. So Pete Dye was left wondering what the heck he was going to do uh, with, with hole number 17. And it actually was his wife, Alice, that suggested, well, hey, why don't you just fill all of this with water and make it an island green? And he said, well, Alice, you are a genius. And that's exactly what he did. He made the 17th hole huge lake, which um, actually also now helps make the 16th hole what it is, that the dry, the reachable par five. Um, the water is also in play to the right of that green as well. And you'll see players hit it in the water on 16, which is it's the same lake as the island green. And it's just a, a cool story of you know how the... the most famous hole on this golf course wasn't even supposed to be anything of, you know, it wasn't supposed to have any of the features that make it what everyone knows it for today. Yeah. I think in a lot of ways, you know, Alice Dye might, might uh, deserve some consideration for one of the great golf course architects of all time, given her contribution uh, of one of the most iconic holes in the history of the game. So pretty, pretty cool story there, Caleb. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Uh, One last thing I'll mention about the course the initial feedback for the course or on the course from the players after that first 1982 Players Championship was not universally positive. So a lot of big names actually had some issues originally with TBC Sawgrass after moving over from Sawgrass Country Club. And uh, Ben Crenshaw, who's a famous golfer, one of the most famous Masters champions of all time, his quote was, quote, it's Star Wars golf, but designed by Darth Vader, end quote. Um, so obviously not a favorable review of TPC Sawgrass, although after some tweaks were made to the course in the years following that first event, uh, Ben Crenshaw later came around and said, hey, it's actually a darn good golf course now. So after some things were made a little bit less severe over time, it, it got better. But um, there were two other great quotes I wanted to highlight that kind of disparaged the course after it first opened up for play. Uh, Jack Nicholas, as we mentioned before, was a three-time player's champion. And he you know, was asked by a reporter if he felt the course suited his game well or felt his game suited the course well. And he said, well, you know, not really, because uh, I've never been good at stopping a five iron on the hood of a car. 
And I think he was really speaking there to how difficult it was to land the ball on some of the small shelves on the greens. Because uh, it would be pretty impossible to land a five iron on the hood of a car, or and really any club for that matter, but especially a long iron like a five iron. And then I think this is my favorite one, but after the first player's championship at Sawgrass, uh, J.C. Sneed called the course, quote, 90% horse manure and 10% luck. So not a lot of good things to say from J.C. Sneed about TBC Sawgrass. And, you know, to his credit, Pete Dye kind of, you know, took this criticism well from players and, and spent time, again, making some of the greens a little bit less severe, kind of changing some of the bunkering here and there a little bit, um, and just making some adjustments to make the course a little bit more pliable um, as, from, from a tournament perspective. And uh, after that, and since then, the course has really gotten a lot of universally good feedback from players and spectators and uh, commentators and, and, and the like. And so I think initially things were a little more difficult than they are now. So uh, for I, for one, would like to see kind of, I would, I would love to hear the modern day players, you know, sort of give us some, some great quotes like this. Uh, I think the closest thing we ever got was, Rory McIlroy saying the greens at Chambers Bay during the U.S. Open were like cauliflower. And that's not quite as fun as 90% horse manure and 10% luck. So. Well, Tyrrell Hodden had his own uh, horse manure quote about Riviera this week. So um, <laughs> stick a mic in front of Tyrrell and let's see what we get. Yeah, yeah Tyrrell Hodden, noted critic of Augusta National and now Riviera Country Club, two of the, two of the best courses in the game. So we'll, we'll just wait and see how he plays in the players this year. Maybe, maybe we'll get some good quotes from there. <laughs> But yeah, either way, I think that wraps up our discussion kind of on the history of TPC Sawgrass. Obviously, we talked a lot about the history of the Players' Championship. Um, but I think really the hope is that you know this gets you excited about the Players' Championship, now having some more context for the event, for where it's played. Um, and we hope that you guys will tune into the event, and, and as well as tune into our podcast next week, where we're going to walk hole by hole through TPC Sawgrass and give you guys sort of a viewer's guide, some idea of what to expect as players try and navigate one of the most difficult courses on tour. Tune in next week. We'll have a great episode ready for you. In the meantime, please give us a rate and review of, of this episode. Uh, we really appreciate it. It goes a long way to helping us grow our podcast. Um, as always, uh, leave a comment uh, on our website if you have any questions, thoughts, or suggestions. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us, everyone. And we're looking forward to seeing you on board next week. Back-to-back weeks of content. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye, everybody.